0: Welcome to Indie Matters,
1: the podcast from the Nevada Independent.
0: I'm your host, Joey Lovato, up here in Reno.
1: And I'm reporter and producer Jacob Solis down in Las Vegas.
0: On this week's episode, intern Kristen Leonard and I put together a story on the coronavirus vaccine that is hopefully going to be distributed to some Nevadans before the end of the year.
1: After that, I sit down with intern Tabitha Mueller to talk about homelessness in Reno and how cleanups near the Truckee River are affecting homeless encampments and the people who live there.
0: Then, editor John Ralston and reporter Riley Snyder have a friendly debate about why The Great British Baking Show is maybe not so great after all. We'll let you decide who's right.
1: And at the end of the show, I talk with reporter Megan Messerly to get the latest numbers and newest developments related to the coronavirus pandemic in Nevada.
0: An FDA advisory panel recommended approval on Thursday of the Pfizer vaccine, clearing the way for emergency authorization of the vaccine as early as Friday, December 11th. There's also a vaccine from Moderna under development, too. Questions have surfaced regarding how the vaccines were developed and reviewed, how they'll be delivered, and who will get the first doses. Our own Kristen Leonard talked to two Nevada doctors about what to expect.
2: Since March, COVID-19 has infected more than 15.5 million Americans and caused more than 285,000 deaths nationwide, including more than 2,300 in Nevada. It's also wreaked havoc on the state economy, including depressed revenues and mass unemployment. There is some hope on the horizon though, as vaccines for the virus are being rolled out internationally and reviewed here in the United States. Their approval may help us move toward a new normal and a stabilized economy. I talked with Dr. Jeffrey Ebersole, Interim Chair of Biomedical Sciences at UNLV, about the vaccines, what's in them, and how they can protect you from the virus.
3: Most of the public is is aware and has had different types of, of shots. They have the flu shot, hopefully on a yearly basis. Most individuals have had the diphtheria, pertussis, and tetanus vaccine, a lot of folks, or at least their children, have had the mumps, measles, and uh, and rubella vaccines. Some folks have had the pneumococcal pneumonia vaccines, and these have all been around for uh, many years, and they're each slightly different. So the area pertussis vaccine and the pneumococcal vaccine actually use a piece of the pathogen, the bacteria, to immunize uh, individuals with to create immunity. The MMR vaccine actually uses the whole virus, a live virus, but it's what it's called, it's attenuated. In other words, it can't cause an infection. Now, the Pfizer and the Moderna vaccines, which are the ones that are going through for for rapid rapid approval, emergency use approval, are different, and we don't have any human vaccines that are like this, Uh, and as opposed to using parts of the pathogen or attenuated virus or dead, uh, uh, dead viruses, they actually use a part of the nucleic acid from the coronavirus. So Pfizer uses an RNA as part of it. That's ribonucleic acid. And Moderna uses DNA. That's deoxyribonucleic acid. So each of these are, are slightly different. The coronavirus, to infect and cause disease, has to first attach to human cells in your nose or throat or wherever. And to do that, it uses this spike protein. So if we block that, then the virus can't infect and cause disease. So each of both Moderna and Pfizer have taken the nucleic acid that codes for this spike protein, and that's what they're using for their vaccine. And even though it seems like it has gone very fast in creating this vaccine, The reality is that both of these companies have been exploring this type of a vaccine for at least the last decade.
2: While how the vaccine works sounds complicated, the task of distributing it to those who need it is just as complex and vital to the success of curbing COVID-19. Dr. Trudy Larson is the Dean of the School of Community Health Sciences at UNR. She talked with me about the rollout of the vaccine in Nevada.
4: The Pfizer vaccine requires a minus 70 storage capacity. So that's a hard one. We have minus 70 freezers at the university and we are working with the county here to give them one of the the freezers so that they'll be able to store the vaccines in the county, which is really part of the distribution networks. This vaccine can also stay cold enough in dry ice. So there are many mechanisms to be able to move this vaccine out From its central, when it comes in, it'll probably come into Las Vegas and maybe to Reno. From those points of distribution out on vans with the specialized dry ice in rural areas. Definitely don't have minus 70 freezers. So the distribution plan through the state is really to have vans with the containers, with the dry ice that can keep the vaccines cold enough. Maybe even sending them out with a a strike team, so to speak. Fact of extra vaccinators, people to help with the, the data management, because it's quite a long process, a lot of data management, and the smaller facilities will not have enough people to be able to do that. So I think part of the consideration is this special vans, maybe strike teams that can go out with those vans to get the vaccine distributed as efficiently and effectively as possible. We do not want any wasted doses.
2: With this recommendation, it's now up to the FDA to decide whether or not to authorize emergency use. The FDA takes recommendations from this external panel into account, but isn't obligated to abide by them.
4: Now, the Moderna is a little different same mRNA, but it doesn't have the minus 70 freezer requirement. It only needs a regular freezer. So we have many, many systems for distribution in place for that regular temperature regulation, because we have to do that with other vaccines already. So that one will be an easier distribution process, but Moderna has to go through the same process that the Pfizer did. I have not seen a date yet for the Moderna proposal to be reviewed by the vaccine committee. So if all goes well, we will have two vaccines by the end of the month that have been authorized for emergency use.
2: People are also wondering about effectiveness. The trials by Pfizer included about 45,000 people, but this vaccine will be distributed to millions will it still be 95% effective? To answer that, here is, once again, Dr. Ebersole, followed by Dr. Larson.
3: If we look historically at most of the viral vaccines that are out there, if they get up to the area of about 75% or so effectiveness, that, that seems to be a ballpark. So there is a potential that these vaccines, when they're used in a larger portion of the population, that effectiveness will drop down where other vaccines are. Or there is a potential that this unique way of going about the vaccine is actually extremely successful and even better than the the, the types that were used in the past. We won't know that until we uh, vaccinate a larger portion of the population and then follow them over time.
4: We need to continue with masks and social distancing and tell at least... 70% of the population is vaccinated. And, and, and if it's a little less effective, 90% still, that 70% is excellent. It will be, it will be what we need to, so that susceptible people are separated by people who are not susceptible.
2: The effective rates represent the proven ability of the vaccine to prevent illness, meaning people will not experience the potentially life-threatening symptoms of COVID-19. A question still facing both Pfizer and Moderna is whether the vaccine will also prevent infection.
4: Can we expect these same effectiveness rates? Because it was really clear between the difference between the placebo group and the vaccinated group, really clear, and that is a sample size that determines statistically significant findings. So might it be a little less effective? Maybe, because there's two questions we don't know how to answer yet. One is we do know these vaccines are effective against illness, COVID-related illness. We do not know if it's that effective against infection. So so one of the things that, that's a, that's a bigger question anyway, where we're going to have to go and culture people serially and find out if they get it, you know, even though they're vaccinated. So that's one of the questions we don't have. So the issue is, that's really important to understand is even if you've been vaccinated, you have to have masks and social distancing to continue. It has to continue.
2: If the vaccines only prevent illness, it will still be possible for asymptomatic carriers to spread the virus to unvaccinated individuals. This question was addressed on Thursday by Katherine Janssen, Pfizer's head of vaccine research and development, who provided a little more insight into what the developer knows on that front.
3: Yes,
5: we actually um, are looking into this to do uh, precisely that, not just to look for prevention of asymptomatic infection, but also doing the PCR testing to look for virus acquisition or prevention of virus acquisition. I may remind, though, that we have data, not from humans, but from our non-human primate study, that would argue that the vaccine does prevent infection. We have seen that it prevents infection of the lung.
2: Just because the vaccine is authorized doesn't mean that everybody is going to get it right away. It takes time and resources to manufacture the vaccine, so it will be distributed in waves. Dr. Larson explained to me who is getting it first in Nevada and possibly how they'll
4: get it. The ICU staff, doctors, nurses, respiratory therapists—people who really work with those who have COVID—and the emergency departments, where they often uh, have not identified a COVID yet and get exposed during the process of it, right. So those are, you know, are pretty two high-profile areas that the vaccines might go to first. And then the other group are the uh, long-term care facilities. These are our nursing homes and those that have a higher level of care. That's where most, many of our deaths are coming from. And so they're also targeted in the first tier. I know that here in Washoe County, the first one, the first doses may be actually distributed via drive-through vaccines, where you drive up in your car, (laughs) much like they're doing for testing, only it's a vaccination process, with the same steps, you know.
2: While we know who is going to be getting the vaccine first and plans are being put into place for distribution, the long-term implications of the vaccine are unknown at this point. Here's Dr. Eversoll.
3: One of the questions that keeps coming out is, okay, you get a vaccine or you recover from infection with coronavirus, how long will immunity last? And we just don't know that yet.
2: With that being said, many medical professionals are confident that these vaccines are promising first steps in beating back the virus.
4: I'm sort of thinking about next fall as being a really good, marker for when we may be able to do a a few more things in a more normal fashion we'll never be back to normal nothing about this experience will leave our consciousness (laughs) so but it but it does offer i think some real hope
0: The Pfizer vaccine may start seeing distribution in the US as early as the week of December 14th, and the Moderna vaccine is expected to move through the FDA approval process in the coming weeks as well. Kristen Leonard is an intern with us here at the Nevada Independent. She's covered the election, coronavirus, and many other crazy things that have happened this year. Her tenure with us is coming to a close and she has done an amazing job with us every step of the way. If you're a news organization looking for a reporter, hire Kristen. This story was produced by Kristen Leonard and also produced and edited by me, Joey Lovato. If you want to read more about the vaccine rollout, stick with us here at the Nevada Independent as more news comes out about it.
1: Homelessness has long been an issue in Nevada, and local governments have frequently butted heads with activists and organizers over just how to handle the issue. But as the pandemic has deepened the state's homeless crisis over the last nine months, ongoing homeless camp cleanups in Reno are, once again, under scrutiny. Nevada independent intern Tabitha Mueller has been tracking this issue for us, and she joins me now. Tabitha, how are you doing?
6: Hi, Jacob. I'm doing all right. How about yourself?
1: (laughs) Doing well, doing well. This is a tough issue, and I think one that's, that's really deeply rooted, I mean, all across uh, both of Nevada's big urban metros. So I think before we get going here, can you give the listeners a sense of what it's like in Reno um, at these homeless encampments and, and what we're really talking about here when we talk about the homelessness crisis?
6: Right. So I think, I think that you made a really good point by saying that this is statewide. I mean, we know people are living in tunnels in southern Nevada, up here in northern Nevada, people camping along the river, uh, people camping near railroad tracks. Like there are different parts of the city that like these large encampments are coming in primarily because there is not enough space for people in in the shelters and affordable housing is just, there's not enough affordable housing for folks right now. And so you kind of get stuck in the situation where people don't have a place to go so they end up trying to take care of themselves in an environment that can be very harsh. Reno's winters can be brutally cold. Um, You know, like I go out into my, you know, out in the morning and I I feel like I'm freezing. Um, So imagine how much worse it is when you don't have a house to go in. So what that means is that when people are creating these encampments, they're looking to create security and safety for themselves from the environment. Uh, So they'll erect tents, they'll throw blankets over tents, Um, And and what the city of Reno kind of worries about with the encampments is some of the fire hazards and some of the dangers those encampments present to the environment. So if you're camping along the river, where do you go to the bathroom if there are no bathrooms, right? Um, The Truckee Meadow, the Truckee Meadow water authority was saying that they were seeing increased contaminants in the river. Uh, And they, they, they had some studies that sort of linked some of the homeless encampments to those contaminants very loosely. Um, but they're saying this is this necessitates a cleanup. Uh, there are loose wires in a lot of these encampments, people with open campfires, and blustery winds can blow them. So from a city perspective, they're saying we need to clean this up. There's a lot of hazards, a lot of danger. I know that uh, I know that the Reno Fire Department has a lot of fears too about these hazards. So for example, I was speaking with um, John McNamara, who's an operations chief for the Reno Fire Department, and he said, you know, his his team was wading through just all manner of mess. Like people will, you know, you touch fecal matter, you wash it in the river. Um, it's it's really difficult to deal with from his perspective, and he kind of described it as a catch twenty two situation.
3: Yeah, it's actually it's a problem. I don't I don't have a solution. I just I know that the people who work for the city of Reno they're doing their best to to you know, have positive outcomes for everybody. And it really is a no-win situation right now.
1: So I'm curious then, right, I think when a lot of people think about these homeless encampments, I think a question that comes to a lot of people's minds is there are homeless shelters, right? So why aren't these homeless people going to these shelters that the cities provide exactly for this reason?
6: So first of all, there are a lot more homeless people in Washoe County than there are beds in the shelter, right? I think that there, right now, the shelter space is around 700 when there's an estimated 1,700 people who are experiencing homelessness at any given night. And those estimates, that, that 1,700 is actually a low ball estimate of how many people are homeless, especially given the crises that we're seeing right now with the state and housing. So there's the matter of there aren't enough beds, but then there's also a lot of fears surrounding the shelter and the shelter environment. And I was speaking with a a social worker at Catholic charities and she talked about how that people have had negative experiences with the shelters. You can't bring your pets into them. They don't allow couples, like you're separated from your family. Sometimes you can't bring your belongings in because there's not a place to put them to to keep them safe. And all of those things matter to people, right? Like, I don't want to go live in a shelter if, Like my significant other can't come with me. Or maybe I've had a traumatic experience. Like, these are all issues that kind of present themselves, and it's not a clear-cut, well, there's shelter, so you should have a space for it.
1: Mm. So we've talked a little bit about why the city officials are concerned about these encampments, right? It, that it's a public health issue in their eyes, and they're worried about be it the river, fires, what have you. On the flip side of this, a lot of activists and organizers, social workers, etc., right, are concerned that these actions by the city to clean up these encampments aren't having the intended effect and aren't actually helping the people affected by homelessness. Can you dig into that a little bit? What is the concern on that side of the issue?
6: So I think a large part of the issue is that there are a lot of structural factors that are going into this. And uh, Aria Overly, a community organizer with Action, a faith-based kind of progressive nonprofit, she said kind of saying there's environmental hazards and saying the cleanups need to happen, that's one thing, but we need to look at the factors that are causing this homelessness, right? The factors that go into say, not having public restrooms for people to use, not having trash disposal options, no healthcare services, Um, And, and yes, shelters might be a good solution or a good idea, but that's not going to go into actually solving homelessness, right? We, from what she was saying, it's, it's designing a system that allows people to get back on their feet, to have the ability to find affordable housing, because right now housing in Reno is very, very unaffordable for most folks.
1: So on the flip side of all this, obviously the people at the center of this are the people who are homeless and who are being moved away from these encampments. And like you said earlier, may not be comfortable with shelters and, and now have to find somewhere else to go. So you talked to some of these people. What were they telling you?
6: So a lot of people were telling me that, you know, this is like so many people I spoke to were saying this is not the situation that they wanted to be in. You know, and so many people are saying, you know, I work, I can't afford a place to live, but I don't really have anywhere else to go. A lot of others were talking about how the situation, the way the city handles homelessness or or not speaking with them, not listening, right? Not sitting down and saying, okay, how can we help you? It, it's sometimes people coming in and saying, well, this is what we think you need. There's actually a group right now that's working on trying to get tents for homeless people because a lot of donations that come in. Most people are donating different things that they think people need versus what they actually need. So for example, someone I was speaking with is like, you know, it's great to get clothes, but what I could really use is a tent. What I could really use is a sleeping bag. What I could really use, you know, like, like I need a place to go and throw my trash away. Like there are groups of people in these encampments who are trying to clean them up, but they don't have anywhere to throw that trash. Um, And so I think that there's a really strong desire to see more communication between um, officials and those living in the encampments versus sort of a dismissal of of them.
1: So this is obviously a very complex problem, right? If we could have solved homelessness, we would have solved homelessness. So. Is there a sense right now, knowing the problems inherent with these cleanups, but also the problems inherent with leaving the camps as they are, um, of where the city wants to go from here? Have there been different solutions proposed, or or is the pandemic really putting a hold on all this kind of stuff?
6: That's a good question. And I think what the city is talking about right now, officials in the region kind of hope to reduce the need for homeless encampments through a new facility that's being built. It's about 46,000 square feet. I think it's about, that's about 15 acres. And it's going to be referred to what's as the Nevada Cares Campus. And city officials from the city of Reno, the city of Sparks and Washoe County um, are kind of designing this as a space for not just shelters, but wraparound care services. So they're hoping to set up a designated campground, um, healthcare, um, places for people to come. And by designated campground, a place where people can camp and they don't have to stay in the shelter, but it's a little bit safer than being out in the cold or, or next to the river, for example. Reno City Council of bioma kind of described this as a place that will be a centralized location. And they actually want to work with, from what the city is saying, they want to work with homeless advocates to kind of develop what some of the services will be. Problem is, is that this won't be built until probably February. So you have, we're still looking at a couple of months of pretty cold weather coming in and these cleanups taking place. And what advocates say about the cleanups, sort of the big issue too, is great, you can come in and clean up a space, but that just means these homeless encampments are going to keep moving because people aren't, it's not like they're getting housed once the cleanup happens. One of the residents I spoke with, he described it as, you know, officials come in, they roust us, they move us out, then we all go somewhere else, we set up camp. Then, then they end up coming and then kicking us out of there. And it's this kind of vicious cycle where people are being moved around the city, but there's no end goal in sight or there's no end for that. And where advocates are most concerned about this is that if you're going to survive the cold, you sort of need more permanent shelters and more permanent dwellings to help you protect yourself. So you kind of get caught up in this, Yes, some of these shelters do present fire hazards, right? Like we did see wiring in some of these encampments. You do see open fire pits, but without fire pits, without some of the blankets, without some of these sometimes very flammable things, people are going to freeze to death. So the other issue is that a lot of local leaders don't have the funding to support some new initiatives. That was a big discussion with this Nevada CARES campus is where are we gonna get the funds to sustain all of these wraparound services? And the county will take on a large part. CARES Act funding is supporting the major um, builds and and the major purchase of the land that was needed. But long-term, I think, officials are looking to the Nevada legislature and to state and federal leaders to to send more funding to help start some of these initiatives.
1: Well, it's a it's a tough question to answer, but an important one. Uh, so, if you want to read more of Tabitha's reporting on homelessness, you can find her full story from this weekend on thenevadaindependent.com. dot com. Tabitha, thanks for joining me.
6: Thanks for having me.
0: All right. And so we are on the third segment of the podcast and I am joined by reporter Riley Snyder and editor John Ralston. We had our yearly retreat over Zoom this year. And during that retreat, the topic during a break was brought up about the Great British Baking Show. And to, to my surprise, that caused some immediate heated discussion between specifically John and Riley. This is a show I've never seen. So I'm already a great debate moderator here, but I'm just going to let you guys uh, discuss, you know, what What it is that you like or dislike about the show? And you can try and convince me in the audience to either watch it or not?
7: Well, sure, why don't we start with John explaining why he wrongly does not enjoy the British baking show and the uh, the wonderful twee and elaborate baked creations they develop week to week?
5: So l- let me just say that Riley, some people on this podcast may not know, is is uh, a supposed genius in the kitchen. And so I can see why he would be attracted. To, to a program like this as is my girlfriend Sarah who is also uh, uh, an amazing cook and just she absolutely loves this show and and the only reason I've seen it is because uh, I, I happen to wander in the room when 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 she's watching it. I can understand I, I have no interest in cooking shows I admit it uh, you can you, you can call me narrow-minded you can say whatever you want Riley but but uh, what, what I really dislike about the show and I, I, this is how I feel about shows like this, although this is an especially bad example of it, is you see these really earnest people who love making these complex creations, and often they will screw up or not make them up to par. And and I just think these, and the Brits are the worst at being nasty, right? And so I, I just, I hate seeing them uh, have their hopes dashed, or even worse, I guess, that they winnow it down and they're sending people home. And so I just find the whole thing to be uncomfortable.
7: I would like to respond by saying that compared to almost any other reality show you can watch on American or British television, I find the Great British Baking Show to be pretty positive. Yes, people screw up. Yes, they fall short of what they kind of had set out to do. But I think there's a lot of like just sort of community internal support between contestants. Usually it's like, I'm not here to make friends, blah, 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 whatever. And so it's sort of a breath of fresh air to watch people be helpful for each other, help each other out on projects. Yeah, they do screw up. I think there's been recent criticism of the show because the Paul Hollywood host kind of runs roughshod over people and is kind of the the Guy Fieri of Great Britain. So people don't really like him. I preferred earlier seasons where they had two hosts that were very funny and always kind of put him in his place. Mary Berry, who's, I guess, a very famous baker in Britain, kind of was an equal and counterbalancing force. So I haven't liked recent seasons as much, so I understand why John might not like that, but... You know, I, I do like cooking. I do like, like baking. It is, it sounds weird, but like it is emotional, right? Like I'm not going to bake a loaf of banana bread just for myself. It's something you're making for someone else. You want to impress other people. And when you fall short, that is, it's like, it's a little embarrassing. It's a little emotional because you're putting something of yourself out there. So I understand why people like get kind of worked up about, you know, a gingerbread house or something. And that leads to tears falling, but it makes, it makes sense because, you know, you're putting yourself out there, you're showing, all of Netflix, all of TV, that this is something that I think I can do really well, that I can like really put together and impress people. And it is a bummer to fall short, but I don't think they ever really like get down on them like some other reality shows do.
5: That's probably right. I I don't, my experience with reality shows is the indie family and that's enough drama for me. So I have no desire uh, to watch any, any of the other ones. And I've only seen other ones in passing. And I'm sure you're right that on, on shows like survivor or the voice or whatever those other shows are, that people are more brutal. That Simon Cowell guy, I guess is just super nasty, right? That's how he made his, uh, reputation but but I guess what I'm wondering Riley is what do you, I mean this is like an international phenomenon this show right I mean why do people like this I mean there's other cooking or baking shows on TV right what is it about this one do you think
7: I think it's a combination of the like general positivity of the show like they kind of stick to the same structure and it's all very positive beyond like the review section but they kind of move past that very quickly so it's predictable in that sense it's very positive And I think like, especially in 2020, it's very soothing to watch like people who are good at something, do something well, like, I don't feel like we get to really watch that in our line of work all the time. So it's just nice to like watch people who are talented do things that are like very difficult to do and pull it off. And they do pull it off. I would say like most of the, the baked creations they do on the show are like extremely ambitious and they usually 70, 80% of the time come together.
5: Yeah, I mean, some of the stuff looks delicious to me, and my only really experience with cooking is I love to eat, and so, and and as I said, my girlfriend Sarah is an amazing cook. I, I can see why she likes it, and she loves to bake as well. Have you ever tried anything that they did or anything remotely like it, Riley, based on watching the show?
7: Nothing like as adventurous, like I haven't made Swiss rolls or anything crazy like that. I mean, I do like pumpkin pies for Thanksgiving and, and just kind of simple stuff like that, but nothing is crazy, but it does like, it inspires you because it's fun. Like you can like really bring people together. I think food is like a great equalizer among people and bringing people together. Obviously a lot harder during the pandemic, but it has like, every time I watch this, I'm like, I should make a loaf of bread tomorrow or something like that. It just kind of brings that, that, that part out of me a little bit more whenever I watch it. You know, it's interesting,
5: Joey, since you've never seen the show, what, I, what I've seen is, yeah, he mentioned this guy, Paul, who I think is a complete jerk. And then there's a, a woman who also judges, I, I, I don't know her name, Riley, but she is relatively nice. And then there's just like these two random guys who are essentially are there for comic relief. Like, I, I have no idea what they're, I think they're there for two reasons. One, for comic relief. I don't know why you need uh, co- comic relief, but they're also there to kind of like make the contestants feel better at various times. Like they walk around and and they say, do I have that right, Riley?
7: Yeah. So one of the criticisms with the show is that it originally was airing on the BBC. So it was like publicly funded. They had uh majority female, two female hosts, and then the Paul Hollywood guy that you don't like probably because he reminds you of yourself and the other host Mary Berry but there was like a contract dispute and everyone left except for Paul Hollywood they kept the format the same but they brought in new people so I like the first seasons on Netflix with the original cast I think you might like that a little bit better just because I thought the just the general vibe and like kind of the groove it was a little bit more balanced as opposed to like again I think British Guy Fieri is probably the best way to describe the Paul Hollywood's general demeanor and vibes but yeah i think that's sort of the 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 issue that that you might run into
0: well hopefully we can you know at some point i remember back in the 2019 legislative session in carson city i'd come down a lot and riley you would always make fantastic dinners one day when we can get back together again we'll have to do the great indie baking show and you and john can uh, face off (laughs) i
5: think i think riley and sarah uh, trying to make some kind of complicated thing will be a fun uh, thing to watch Uh, that that i'd watch
0: I- I'll never turn down Riley making me uh, baked goods. I remember uh, in, in
7: 2017, when Joey was a mirror intern, I think I made homemade taquitos and he took some and went in his car and like had an epiphany about how good they were. So he's a, he's a <laughs> I, fan.
0: I think that was before I was comfortable enough to hang out with you guys and you gave them to me and I literally sat outside of your house and ate them before I drove home. <laughs>
5: They ostracized you early on? I had never heard of this. Don't we get out of the house. We don't want to hang with you.
0: I, I think it was more me being awkward and uncomfortable, but <laughs> but yes, many good memories in both of the uh, the 2017 and the 2019 legislative sessions. And hopefully in the 2021 session, we will make some memories as well, although it may be a social distance. But Riley, John, thanks so much for uh, coming on to debate this very odd topic that I just felt you two needed to hash out outside of the indie Retreat.
7: <laughs> I feel better now. Yeah, I feel great since I won the debate. So thanks, Joey, for me. <laughs> No problem. Thanks, guys. That was a foregone conclusion.
4: <laughs>
1: and now we want to take a minute to dive a little deeper into the context of the coronavirus in Nevada. To help us do that, as always, is Nevada Independent Healthcare Reporter Megan Messerly. Megan, thanks for being here.
8: Happy to be here.
1: All right, Megan. So as always, before we get into anything else, we're going to start with the numbers. Um, They've not been great, uh, but let's just get into it. Noting that we're recording at around 9am on Friday, December 11th. What can you tell us about the data?
8: yeah so let's start off talking a little bit about uh the case numbers so so as of right now we're we're sitting just a little bit below one hundred and eighty thousand cases we 're at one hundred and seventy nine four hundred and fifty four covid nineteen cases confirmed across Nevada since the beginning of the pandemic. We talked a little bit about this last week but um, you know we've been expecting to see a spike associated with Thanksgiving gatherings and this is around the time that we would start to see that if if we're going to see one. Uh, We talked a little bit last week about how we had actually seen a little bit of a decrease in the numbers. If you look at our our graphs online on our data page you can see that little blip. Uh, Essentially state officials have looked at that and, and attributed that to couple things. Uh, One, decreases in people seeking out testing and not as many testing sites being open over the Thanksgiving holiday. People are also with their families, so maybe not as eager to seek out uh, testing uh, during the holiday period. And then two, you know, labs maybe not processing those results, you know, as quickly because of giving their staff time off over the holiday. So we saw that those couple um, days of decreases, but now we started to see the numbers increase again. So we're kind of waiting to see you know, do we kind of continue at the steady pace that we have been for the last, um, you know, now couple of months, or do we start to see an even sharper spike, um, you know, driven by these these Thanksgiving gatherings? So that's what we're going to be watching out for uh, in the coming weeks. It's worth mentioning uh, deaths as well have, have been on the rise. Uh, we've talked a little bit about this as well, but, you know, deaths, death trends tend to lag case trends by about five or, or so weeks uh, because it takes some time for you to get infected, get sick enough to go to the hospital, seek treatment, and, and then eventually um, and pass away from the illness. Uh, so we're, we are seeing though an increase in, in deaths and, and we're, we're seeing um, higher levels of deaths now than we were over the summer. Uh, we haven't, if you look at um, sort of the, the numbers on cases, we're sort of you know double or more than double where we were. We're not there yet with deaths. We're just a little bit above where we were at our peak over the summer, but, but those numbers do seem to be increasing. So, you know, just keeping an eye on those and, and seeing where they go. I know hospital officials have said, you know, they're, they're better at treated, treating COVID now than they were at the beginning. Obviously, you know, now, you know, when you've had your, when it's your first COVID case, you just don't have a lot of uh, clinical competency to know, you know, what you're doing, but now, you know, they've treated many, many COVID patients and there's, um, more of a sense of sort of best practices and, and what should be done for patients in the hospital. So, um, so we're still waiting to see exactly what those uh, death trends uh, look like. And then speaking of hospitalizations, um, as I, I reported in, uh, coronavirus contextualized this week. Uh, n- Nevada is now the first in the nation for uh, most COVID-19 hospitalizations per capita. So again, that's that's current COVID-19 hospitalizations, not cumulative. That's people who are currently in the hospital with COVID-19. Um, South Dakota was ahead of us last week, but now uh, Nevada is number one, and hospitals have been talking about the strain that they've been experiencing. We've talked about renowned setting up their alternate care site in their parking garage. Um, The rural hospitals have been talking about, you know, they don't have big parking garages to set up alternate care sites. So, you know, some have um, like warehouses they've converted uh, to these alternate care sites. Some are using um, you know, parking lots, they're kind of using every uh, square inch of space that, that they can. Um, they, they were saying it's, you know, it's a problem of too many patients, not enough staff within the rural hospitals, just not enough space as well in which to put them, or even these sort of ancillary uh, facilities to be, to be converted into hospital space. So that's, that's the challenge that they're facing right now.
1: Hmm. So as we look at these hospital numbers, worth noting then that there are just a couple days left on the governor's statewide pause. Uh, Do we have a sense on when we're going to get an update from the governor on any possible new restrictions the state might see?
8: Yeah. So it's worth noting that this was a three week statewide pause. You know, we've talked about this, that changed uh, limits on capacity, certain places like restaurants. Um, it also uh, limited gathering sizes, you're supposed to, you know, restrict your gatherings to no more than two households, um, you're supposed to wear masks all the time now. And in all gatherings, whether, you know, private, private or public, um, and, and that was a three week period. And that's set to expire on Tuesday. So we're going to be expecting to hear some sort of an update on on, you know, where things are at. Um, you know, the governor had addressed this during his last press conference saying, you know, we haven't seen The data improve, and he he doesn't want to put in place, uh, you know, restrictions that are going to hurt businesses because he knows that you know the economy really can't uh, take you know take you know much more of a blow than it already has. Um, But it's going to be this question I think in the next couple days. You know, do we start to see the numbers turning around? They they don't seem to be doing that. Uh, And if that continues to be the case, then then what new restrictions um, are going to be in place? I know a lot of. A lot of jurisdictions are, are worried about that and worried about what might be coming down the pipeline, but we should have more uh, information on that in the coming days.
1: Hmm. Well, looking toward the future a bit, we know the vaccine is on its way. There are several vaccine candidates and obviously in Britain, I'm sure most people know that they have already started vaccinating some elderly Britons are a little not quite there in the United States. Is there a sense in Nevada of when uh, we're going to see the vaccine here?
8: yeah so an fda uh committee met uh, on Thursday this week um, to review the vaccine and review the, the data associated with it. Um, they made a recommendation to to approve Uh, use of the vaccine, but now that has to go to the actual FDA. So, uh, you know, folks are typically saying, you know, the FDA typically takes the recommendation of this committee, but, you know, to cross your T's and dot your I's, the FDA technically still has to give its um, seal of approval before the vaccine can go ahead. A lot of folks are looking at, um, you know, possibly Monday or Tuesday of next week to begin uh, distribution of the vaccine. um, State officials haven't haven't yet given an update on that because it's all completely dependent on the federal government and then, you know, just shipping. And then once the vaccines come into Nevada, they need to be distributed across the state. So a little bit of logistical challenge there, but they have those plans in place so that as soon as, you know, they get the date saying, okay, the vaccines are coming to Nevada on this date, they can, you know, go from there and, and start this process of, again, vaccinating. It's going to be the frontline healthcare workers. Uh, and then, like n- nursing home residents, um, the long term care facility residents who are going to be at the, the first of line. So, we're expecting that to begin uh, n- next week if, if, if the FDA gives it, its okay.
1: Okay. Well, we'll have to leave it there for today. If you want to know more about the coronavirus in Nevada, you can head to our website, nevadaindependent.com. There, you can find weekly updates from Megan in her coronavirus contextualized series, as well as a regularly updated dashboard with all the latest COVID 19 data. Megan, thanks for joining me. Thanks for having me. Thank you for listening to this episode of Indie Matters.
0: We'd like to thank Kristen Leonard, Dr. Jeffrey Ebersole, Dr. Trudy Larson, Tabitha Mueller, John Ralston, Riley Snyder, and Megan Messerly for being on the show this week.
1: If you like listening to the podcast, consider leaving a rating and review on Apple Podcasts or wherever else you'd like to listen.
0: Do you have thoughts about the podcast? Let us know by emailing me at joey at theenvyindie.com or jacob at theenvyindie.com.
1: Our theme song was written and performed by Reno band People With Bodies. If you want to hear more of their music, you can find it on Spotify and Bandcamp. Additional music this week from James Grant, Neil Cross, Lance Conrad, Nir Ben-Ami, and Storyblocks.
0: Thank you for listening to Indie Matters. I'm your host, Joey Lovato.
1: And I'm reporter and producer Jacob Solis.
0: And we'll talk to you next week.